My name is Dave, one of the pastors here on staff. If you're back there, there are a few seats up here. It's not as many as I thought, but there's a couple if you want. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I have the privilege of getting to wrap up our series in 1 Peter today. If you've not been here, don't worry. This stands alone and you'll be fine. If you have been here, you'll know that this series, we've been looking at what it means to become a people of fill in the blank. So we've seen a lot of different things, becoming a people of honor, a people of submission, a people of love. It's, uh, we're becoming a people that are countercultural. And so this morning's service is also going to be countercultural. There's going to be some things that I say that at first brush, it's probably going to hit you wrong and say, wait a minute, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. But we're going to slow down and look at it and just realize that the cultural context that we're in, the narrative that we're living under is different than the narrative of the Bible. And so there are things that we pick up through culture that are close to what's true, but they're far enough off that they'll lead you in the wrong direction. And so what we've been spending time in is in 1 Peter is looking at what does, what did Peter say to the early church and how they can become a people of holiness? How can they become a people that that represent and live in the goodness of who God is? So today we're going to be looking at what it means to become a people of authority. And this is particularly countercultural. Because kingdom authority and earthly authority look pretty different. Kingdom authority comes from Jesus. Earthly authority comes from people. And I'm not disparaging earthly authority. It's important. Like There has to be bosses in charge of their employees. There are people, elected officials, that are in charge of the government that help run that. There are professors who teach classes, and they're in charge of that. There are, you know, generals who are in charge of the army. Like, authority is a real thing. It just exists. But human authority and divine authority look real different. Because human authority we get from people. You get elected, you get promoted, you get um, placed into a position of authority that other people give you. And oftentimes it's contingent on how good you are at something or how persuasive you are or how much time you've spent doing it. Kingdom authority is not only reserved for the mighty, it's not reserved for the really smart, for the excellent Kingdom authority is reserved for God's children. And those of us who place our life under Jesus' submission because it is a borrowed authority, it's a given authority, it is power that Jesus has and delegates to his people. So as a Christian, you can have kingdom authority whether you're a police officer Or if you're imprisoned and given your life to Jesus, you can have kingdom authority. Whether you're wealthy or poor, you can have kingdom authority. But the way there looks radically different than the way to authority in our culture. I read a tweet this week that said, uh, 
kind of our cultural narrative is improve yourself, solidify your brand, and get followers. It's like, okay. And uh, improve yourself, solidify your brand, and get followers. Which stands in stark contrast to what Jesus says, where he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, which means die to yourself, and follow me. And so it's a direct opposition to the cultural narrative that we live under. So we're going to be looking today at 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. I'm going to read over all of it, and then we're going to look at it in three sections. We're going to look at humility as a way to authority, then we're going to look at trust and anxiety, and then we're just going to talk about fixing our gaze on Jesus. So here's our text. Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert, because like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, and the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. First thing that we're going to look at is this countercultural call to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. So, why this? Why humility over pride? Why does our exaltation come as we humble ourselves under God? Isn't our job to exalt ourselves and try to position ourselves best so that we can take advantage of the situation that we grow it, go, are in? Why is the call to exaltation humility first? Well, for two reasons. The first reason is that as Christians, we follow the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 tells us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard, yourself, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." 
Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So the pattern is Jesus, seated with God, equal with God, lowered himself and took on the form of a human being. And he did not account, he did not use his equality with God to secure his position, to forward his own agenda. He didn't use all the power in the world to create the most comfortable life possible. But he used that power, he laid it down so that he might go and die, take on the sin of the world, and set humanity free from evil. So being found in human likeness, he humbled himself to death on a cross. So we have this pattern where humility is the way to exaltation in Jesus. He used his strength. He didn't negate the fact that he was strong. And I don't want to negate the fact that preaching to a group full of Purdue students that you guys are smart and you're privileged, and you have some power, and you're at a great university, and you'll probably do great things with your careers. I don't want to belittle that fact or lay that down or pretend like that's not true. But we want to redefine that and say, what is our strength actually for? When we look at Jesus, he used his strength. He didn't deny his strength. He used his strength, but he used it for good. Lay it down, sinless life, death on a cross for the sake of other people. And as he did that, he was exalted and lifted up. We see in Ephesians this same, another riff on this. Paul says, I pray in Ephesians 1, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? So he's saying, I want you to know how good God is and I want you to know how powerful God is. And God is so powerful that he put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he's put everything under his feet and made him head over everything and over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Jesus laid down, suffered, and died on the cross, but God did not leave him dead in the grave. With his great power, he raised him from the dead, exalted him, and sat him at the right hand of Jesus, of the right hand of God. Jesus humbled himself under the mighty hand of God and was exalted in due time. Now, that's one reason that we humble ourselves, is that we follow the pattern of Jesus. The second reason is, is that unlike Jesus, we are not perfect, and we are not equal with God. That we were born into sin, inherited sin, were finite, made from dust, and in need of a Savior. 
Ephesians 2 continues and says, You were dead through your trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, following desires of the flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, in his rich, who is rich in mercy... Out of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead, through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. You have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that none of you may boast. And so we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because we realize that apart from God, we're dead. Apart from God, we're dead. And it's not the work. We can't do things that matter when we're dead. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because it is in him where we find our life. It is in him where we receive our life. It is in him which is what our hope is toward. It is in him where our future is secured. It is in him where our lives have meaning and purpose. It is in him. And so we humble ourselves because Jesus humbled himself. And we humble ourselves under God because we don't have anything apart from him but we get everything through him. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to a a good friend of mine this week, last week. And he had been in ministry for a couple years. And this verse just like hit because he had all of this anxiety around his future He had all of this anxiety around comparison with other people and where he's at in his life stage and how things are working out. And it was not good. He had all of this anxiety. But what we realized when we were talking is that he had trusted Jesus. He trusted him as his savior, that Jesus would forgive his sins, which is really good and really important. But he had not trusted Jesus as his Lord. He had not humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. He was looking to exalt himself. He was looking to secure his own position. He was using his relationship with Jesus as a strategy to get where he wanted to go. Okay, yeah, I screwed some stuff up. I need forgiven for that. So I'm gonna click that into place in my life, take care of the sin portion, but I'm still in charge of my life. And Jesus says, if you... The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, King, that it's a matter of not only receiving salvation from him, but also giving our lives to him, humbling ourselves under the command of God, under his good statutes, under his laws, under his direction and way of life. That to humble ourselves means that we actually let him be Lord, Let him be king, not use him as a strategy of our own navigation of our lives. And so some of us struggle with that. Some of us struggle with, okay, yeah, I'll take your forgiveness, but I'm still in charge. Other people, 
It's the opposite. Is that yes, the Lord is, is, is king. He's in charge, but ah, he wouldn't trouble himself with a little old me. My problems aren't so big in light of the universe. I mean, goodness sakes, read the news. It's falling apart. Why would God trouble himself with me? Yes, he's the king, but we're not receiving his salvation in our situations. And in our lives, I think it's a misunderstanding of how good God really is. He says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on Jesus because he cares for you. It's actually funny that this is attached to humility because the refusal to cast your anxieties on Jesus is a subtle form of false humility, which is pride. To decide not to cast your anxieties on God, not to give him your problems and trust him is a form of pride because it's saying, actually, I don't need you, Jesus, to deal with this because I'm going to worry my way out of this situation. Or I don't need to trust you, Jesus, with this future. I'm going to work my way towards it. Or Jesus, I don't need your forgiveness for this sin that I did in my past or I'm currently doing. I'm just going to hold on to the shame and punish myself. It's putting yourself in the role of Savior and Lord and Judge. It's putting yourself in the driver's seat. And I think that we can forget that Jesus is like, super open about your neediness and really invitational. He says, all of you who are thirsty, come to me and drink. All of you who are weary, come to me and rest. All of you who are anxious, come, cast your anxieties on me. I'm right here. Let me help you with this stuff. He says, because I love you. He loves us. He's not surprised by our messiness. He's not surprised by our problems. He's not mad at us about it and shaming us about it. He wants to help us. He paid for it on the cross. And he is reigning and all-powerful. And he's willing to step into the situation and to help us through it. So we're going to talk more about this in a minute. But because anxiety is a huge issue on Purdue's campus, I mean, shocking issue. I heard from a friend that 60% of Purdue grad students are on anti-anxiety medication. There's multiple weeks wait to get into CAPS to talk about anxiety issues that every week I'm dealing with three or four people at least, new cases of people struggling with anxiety. And so it's real. And so I want to know in our cultural moment, when we say cast all your anxieties on him, we're actually talking about something real that we're dealing with. And I don't want it just to be theoretical. We want to talk about actual strategies, but I want to invite my friend Miriam up because she's one of the people we've been talking about anxiety with. Guys, would you welcome Miriam for being so brave? So Miriam... You've got a story, starts with some anxiety. Why don't you tell us about what that's looked like for you? So I was always kind of like a nervous 
kid, I guess, growing up. I didn't really realize it until, like, hindsight. It's 2020. Um, but I came to Purdue, and it kind of, like, manifested, and it was, like, chronic, and it yeah. got really bad. <laughs> and that's really interesting. She said this in the first service, and I just wanted to note, like, that's not unique to you. And that might be, I'm assuming there's other people here who have dealt with a little bit of anxiety in their past, but when they came to Purdue, it just exploded. I've seen that a lot. And so just want to note that like, if that's your situation, you're not alone. Yeah. So it got pretty bad. It was centered around like fear of the future. Um, I kind of like came to Purdue with a plan and figured, you know, I knew what I was doing and I got here and, uh, God was like, that's not the plan. And I kind of had this little, like, kind of yelled at him. I was like, what do you want from me? You know, and I was freaking out. I call it my quarter-life crisis, like, as opposed to, like, a midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> but that happened, um, and he kind of met me there. And he was like, well, yeah, this is not where I want you to be, so let's little, you know, move and go somewhere else. And so I changed my major, and things got better, but it didn't go away. There was still anxiety under the surface. Um, and then last semester, he completely freed me of that anxiety, and it was wonderful. Um, Miriam, what did it look like? So it's sort of progressive, and there's a couple steps. Like the first one is there's pretty massive anxiety, and in the process, you were like beginning to hum literally like humble yourself before God and allow him to have say over your future. And so that reduced some of it. And then what, what happened between that and what you said, total freedom? So I, would, I came to the realization that anxiety is just unreleased fear. Um, and so once I was able to name it as fear, it's like, oh, yeah, there's things I'm actually afraid of. It's not just general nervousness all the time. Um, and so, yeah, the big fear was fear of the future. And so once I identified that, when I was able to, like, directly see it, I could give it to God. And he was like, great, we're going to take that. And that's gone. <laughs> Oh, that is really good. <laughs> Anxiety as unreleased fear. And when you were able to recognize that and then name what the actual fear was, you're able to give that to God. Because in the first service, I said, okay, cast all your anxiety on him. That sounds cute and great, but I know any of you who have struggled with anxiety, like that's what you try to do, right? And it doesn't necessarily move forward. But this idea of being able to identify not only, okay, here's general nervousness, but what is the root of that? What is the lie that you're believing or the future that you're afraid of? And so you can say, oh, wait a minute, I'm not just nervous and God, I'm handing you my nervousness, but I'm terrified of the future. I'm actually handing my future to you. That's cool. Yeah. So I did that and it was great. Um, and then the time came for me to plan my life. Um, if I could live like minute by minute, I would. Um, but you have advisors telling you like, hey, you should probably think about what happens after graduation. So I made a tentative plan and brought it to my advisor and I was feeling really good about it. I wasn't anxious about it at all. Um, and I brought it to her and um, she said something that I wasn't expecting her to say. She was like, this is great. You don't have to stick to it as long as you're, you know, like happy in what you're doing. Like, that's great. Like, wow, that was really nice of her to say. But then I left that meeting more anxious than I'd felt in months. And I was confused. I was like, why? This is, this is a great meeting. I don't know why I'm so nervous. Um, I'm just, like, anxious again. Um, and it was kind of frustrating. It's like, okay, we're back here again, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, I realized that when she said that, she had shifted my focus from, like, what God wanted for me and, like, me looking towards, like, God's happiness and his, what he wants towards my own, because um, she said, as long as you are happy, and I 
don't think it's like helpful to put all of that pressure on yourself to make yourself happy because you can't. And so that's where all the nervousness came from. So once I realized that that shift had happened, I was able to like shift my focus back to God. Like, okay, it's not on me to make myself happy, and that's not even the point. You know, it's you. Um, and then my anxiety was gone. Come on, that's awesome. Thank you so much. So it's cool. We sat down and talked a couple weeks ago, and it was just, I was thinking about this sermon, and it was just an exact vision of what happens. And I think that culture says, you know, find your own happiness, that you're responsible for your own happiness, that you can find your own way, find your, be your best you, and it's all up to you. But when it's all up to you, it, all of a sudden, your future security is crushing because in the uncertain world that we live in today, it's really hard to be responsible for your future and to make accurate judgments about how we should navigate our lives. It's a lot of pressure. Even our own happiness, when we sacrifice for it and go after it, sometimes it leaves us radically unsatisfied. There was a time in my life when uh, I sat down to dinner with some dear people that I love. And they had made a lot of sacrifices in order to eat well and to travel well. And they were doing just that. But we sat down to a dinner. And how good the salmon was that night mattered a lot. And it mattered a whole lot because there was years of sacrifice that were going into it in a pursuit of happiness that were resting on this little piece of salmon that could not hold the weight of sacrifice and life. And the pursuit of happiness, happiness cannot hold the weight of our life. To pursue happiness first and foremost, or to pursue financial security first and foremost, it's not enough to provide meaning. Happiness comes as a serendipitous side effect of being in the presence of God. That it comes as a tangential piece to a life of meaning that we pursue. And so when you pursue meaning and you have a great dinner, awesome and it's great and it is happy and you get all those good happy feelings and it tastes good and you're connecting with people but it is not the pursuit of our whole life it comes in the journey and so I think for some of us we need to get real practical on what does it look like to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for you how do we like Miriam recognize that the shift has gone from God at the center of my life to me at the center of, or center of my future even. It's subtle. I mean, Miriam loves Jesus. Her life is devoted to him. She made sacrifices for that. And it was this subtle shift where accidentally she started saying, God, is this what you want me to do with my life too? Is this making me happy? So what do we do? How do we keep track of that? There are two verses that I think are really helpful. The first one is out of Philippians 4. It says, do not worry about anything. And collectively we'll say, yeah, right, Paul. Do not worry about anything, but since we're going to worry about things, what do we do instead in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving? That means talking to God, asking him for things, and thanking him because that helps us root in the reality of who God really is. 
Because we got to remember who God is, right? Thanksgiving helps us root in the reality that who we're praying to is not a little insipid God. It's not a little idol. Who we're praying to is the creator of the universe. Jesus who came and died. Jesus who rose again and is seated above all authority. Jesus who has all the power in the world and is capable of bringing about the redemption of all things. When we thank him, we remember, oh yeah, thank you, Jesus, that you created everything and it's beautiful. And thank you that you saved my soul and forgave all of my sin. And thank you that you have been unfailingly faithful in my life to bring me up to this point. Now, here's the thing that I'm worrying about. We can talk to him about it and ask him to resolve it. And the promise that's tucked in here is amazing. It says, and the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your mind and heart in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say, do not worry about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and he'll answer all of them immediately and then you can be at peace. No, it's a better promise than that because it says his peace precedes the outcome. That we can be at peace before it is resolved. Which is great news because this whole world isn't resolved yet. We're waiting for Jesus to return and set everything right. So there's lots of things for us to worry about and lots of things for us to pray about and lots of things that we wish were different and lots of things that we're working to change and make different. But we don't have to be at unpeace until they come. That we can live at peace before those things happen because when we are vitally connected to Jesus, when he is what we're looking at instead of the worry, when he is the primary focus, that we get to walk in his peace that surpasses understanding. We can be at peace while it's unresolved, while our family members are a mess, while we don't have a job offer. We can be at peace because we are relationally connected to God. That we are getting care from him, that we are getting peace from him. And it, it's again here in this Psalm 16. I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning, but it starts off, protect me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. And then he talks about how, you know, when you choose idols, you multiply your sin when you, or your sorrows. When you have another thing in first place, when God isn't in first place, when we put something else there, our own happiness or our own security or our own future or recognition from other people, when we put that in first place, we multiply our sorrows. Because those things can't actually defend us. They can't actually name us. They can't actually secure us fully, but God can. So our sorrows are multiplied when happiness is in the place of God. But he says over here, I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, because I keep, instead of keeping happiness or my future or my worry or my stress always before me, it says, I will keep the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand. If you're a Christian, Jesus promises that he will never leave you and never forsake you. He says, me and my father will come make our home in you, that he lives in us by his spirit. He's right here. So we can keep him always before us. 
It's a little bit of a dance because we can put our problems in front of us, but we can also put Jesus in front of us. And we still see our problems because Jesus is invisible, but we can put Jesus in front of us, still see our problems, but see our problems through the reality of Jesus instead of dominating our field of vision. It says, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Because the Lord is before me, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices and my body also rests secure. I don't know of three phrases that feel more different than depression and anxiety, but a glad heart, a rejoicing soul, and a secure body are like the opposite of depression and anxiety. And so, and we can trust God because he says, for you will not leave my soul among the dead. You'll not allow your holy one to rot in the grave. You show me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. We can see that even the longing for pleasure and the desire for joys are found when we're walking in the path of life with Jesus. That we can rest assured that putting our trust in him is the safest place it can be because God's promises are true and he promises us that he will not forsake us. So the last piece is again to fix our eyes on Jesus. After you have suffered for a little while, this is important. There's no promise in the Bible that you will not suffer. There's no promise that becoming a Christian means you will live a pain-free life and a problem-free life. In fact, the Bible promises opposite things. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Great. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. The world is already in trouble. It's marred by sin. There's a devil that is roaming around looking to destroy us. There are all sorts of injustices and evils. We will have trouble. We will have suffering. But we also have a God who is present with us and capable of taking care of us. And he says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. So he will restore you. That he is capable of healing the wounds in the past. He will restore you. He died on the cross. It is by his stripes that we are healed. He will restore you. He will forgive you for the sins of your past. Jesus himself will forgive you and he will restore you. He will support and strengthen you. One of my favorite verses is in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It says, my grace is sufficient for you for power is made perfect in weakness. That God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And when we can recognize our weakness, we can recognize our inability to do things without God. That's when we can rely on his support and his strength. And he says, Jesus himself will establish you. So much of our worry is attached like Miriam's and my own about future things, about how will I be established? Am I financially establishing my family well? Am I positioning myself well for the future? And Jesus says, I myself will establish you. That is ultimately in eternity that he's going to establish us in a place that is in, in his glory, seated at his right hand. 
and he is capable. He's doing that ultimately. And these promises are also for now that Jesus himself will restore us and support us and strengthen us and establish us now. He is with us. And he has all of the power forever and ever. Oh, to grace, how great.